Hello and welcome to another episode of Stroke FM. We are happy to be back as we are emerging from the pandemic and going into the summer ready to rock. At this time, we want to tell you about some cool science we did recently about heparin. This episode is called We Had a Hunch. And we're back. So I have the distinct privilege of having the first author of this paper with me today, Tess Fitzpatrick. And we have our local science guru who's doing her PhD during residency, Kat Sawicka. Why don't you guys introduce yourselves and tell us what you do? All right. Thank you so much uh, for having us. I'm Tess Fitzpatrick and I'm a stroke neurologist in Toronto. And I had the pleasure of uh, writing this paper and uh, doing this research with you and some other wonderful people uh, in Toronto. And uh, I'm Kat Swicka, and thanks for the lovely introduction. Um, as mentioned, I am a PhD candidate in clinical epidemiology at the Institute of Health Policy and Evaluation at University of Toronto. And uh, I'm just reflecting that this is, I think, at least my second podcast with you, Tess. And I think our first one was over a year ago on Wait, way more than a year ago on dual antiplatelet therapy. Uh, and what up, we did duck? it in the office. That's right. That's the one. <laughs> so go ahead and refer back to that. I think the podcasts have come a long way since, but really happy to be back. That's quite funny because I think it's like in stroke neurology where we don't know what to do. We're like, yeah, we'll just uh, put the patient on DAPT. And uh, so that, that's, quite the, that's quite funny. That's a good backup. Thanks for that. So um, let's talk about this thing. So we we had a hunch that you know there was issues with not the molecule heparin works but there was issues with the the use of unfractionated heparin and how um, you know it may uh, sort of do its thing in used in stroke indications. So Tess, why don't you walk us through kind of the thought process and sort of what you how you sort of designed this thing out? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, obviously in in stroke there are many situations where we need to start a patient on anticoagulation pretty urgently. Um, So patients, for example, with free-floating thrombi. And traditionally, we we use uh, IV heparin, unfractionated heparin, uh, and that's what a lot of centers, I think at least in Canada, are used to using. And there are a lot of reasons I think that that was the go-to for a long time. Uh, and some of those, I, you know, are the fact that it um, has a pretty short half-life and people somehow feel more comfortable knowing there's a, a reversal agent. You can turn it on and off. Um, but we've seen at our center, and I'm sure every other center, that there are actual problems with unfractionated heparin in terms of the APTT. Uh, so it's really difficult for patients to achieve a therapeutic APTT quickly and stay in the therapeutic range. There's often people are subtherapeutic for long periods of time or super therapeutic. And we um, saw and noticed this pattern a lot uh, in patients who were uh, on IV uh, unfractionated heparin. And uh, because of this, it kind of led uh, Human and I to, to talk about this and um, think that this would be a good Uh, thing to explore. And so we uh, designed a study in order to 
uh, assess, you know, how in specifically in stroke patients, how often are patients in the therapeutic APTT range uh, who are on unfractionated heparin? And are there, you know, are there adverse events for those people who are um, subtherapeutic or supertherapeutic? You know, what are the the consequences of this? Uh, So, that was kind of the, the basic idea. And what we did is we uh, conducted a, it was a retrospective study. So we looked at the charts of all patients who were admitted to either the critical care or stroke unit at, um, at our center and uh, over a th- uh, three-year period. And essentially, we identified using our pharmacy database which patients were treated on with unfractionated heparin and identified the patients who were on it for specifically cerebrovascular indications. So we obviously excluded patients who were for on it for other things like um, venous thromboembolism. That's not cerebral venous thromboembolism or acute coronary syndrome. Uh, and essentially, uh, we gathered the data, gathered the uh, from every from the chart, the demographics and the APTT values um, uh, and uh, adverse events and uh, demonstrated kind of what we, you know, we had a hunch about um, that uh, the um, unfractionated heparin, you know, patients are spending way less time in the therapeutic APTT range um, than, uh, than would be ideal. So uh, we can get into the exact results later, but um, that kind of led led us to thinking more about alternate uh, agents like low molecular weight heparin and um, future studies that would be useful to actually compare unfractioned heparin with low molecular weight heparin and uh, specifically again in the stroke population. So that was kind of the basis and the Coles notes of the study. Thanks for the summary, Tess. I really enjoyed reading this paper and, and really recommend uh, that those who are interested go back and, and, and read the full thing. It reads very nicely. I think that this paper is really clinically relevant. And I was wondering if you could maybe talk about the typical examples for the clinical uses of unfractionated heparin for the indications you chose. You chose three very specific cerebral vascular indications, and I really like that you categorize them. Uh, but maybe if you could walk us through what typically happens in those cases, intraluminal venous sinus thrombosis, and cardiogenic indications? Sure. So uh, basically, we clumped together uh, intraluminal thrombus, and that uh, encompassed patients who had um, a free-floating thrombus, um, thrombus uh, due to dissection, or patients who were put on unfractionated heparin due to suspicion or high risk of thrombus uh, in the setting of severe stenosis from atherosclerosis, yeah, carotid or, or basilar usually. And so that was one category. And the reason that we lumped it all together is just because of the number of patients um, uh, in the study. We didn't have a huge number of patients. And so um, this allowed us uh, to have fewer categories and, and study it better. So that second category was cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. Uh, and then the third one was any cardiogenic indi- indications. Uh, so patients who uh, with had a cardiac thrombus, for example, or low ejection fraction, valve thrombus, um, the, uh, these situations. So I guess I'm thinking back to being a junior resident and, and seeing, oh, this patient is coming in they have a thrombus or they have a CVSD, 
from what I kind of recall, it's almost immediately that we start them on the heparin. Uh, we get out the order set, uh, and maybe some point down the road, uh, we switch them over to another anticoagulant, whether it's slow molecular or DILAC. But really, in that hyperacute period, we use um, heparin. And then we put the patients on these nomograms that, you know, as a resident, they just kind of happen and they get called when they're low or called when they get high. But what your study really pointed out to me is that there are huge fluctuations and patients have a variable amount of time to reach what we'd hope would be actually effective anticoagulation for these things. Can you, can you comment how this study sort of changed how you feel about these things or as you alluded to earlier, proved, you know, what the hunch that you had about heparin prior to looking at this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's exactly it. There's so much APTT variability that that we saw, um, not just between patients, but even within the same patient. And if you actually uh, read about it, um, part of the reason for that, uh, and we spoke about this with our, some of our hematology colleagues who were involved um, uh, with writing the paper, uh, and essentially there's really non-specific binding of unfractionated um, heparins, um, uh, negatively charged chains to some positively charged plasma proteins that are actually often elevated in patients um, who as acute phase reactants um, in patients who are severely ill, including patients with major strokes. And so some of that variability in the effectiveness is due to that. Unfractionated heparin also binds to uh, other cells, monocytes and endothelial cells, and, and that also contributes to the, the variability um, and mandates kind of that frequent lab monitoring that we need to do. Do. Um, and of course, there's some variability in terms of how often the lab monitoring is, is done as well, depending on the specific nomogram in the center that you're working at, and even the nurse who happens be, to be on the shift and when the, the blood work is actually drawn. And so that introduces kind of further variability in the quality of the anticoagulation um, uh, achieved. And so kind of as a consequence of these factors, patients um, who are on uh, IV unfractionated heparin often spend a lot of time not actually within the therapeutic window, uh, the, the range that we want them to be. And then it can result in either risk of uh, being undertreated or a risk of being overtreated. And uh, so that definitely was uh, something that we um, expected and did find in, in our study. I imagine that this is also sort of an unquantitated problem in people who are hypercoagulable to begin with and have other inherent issues. I mean, you show a really nice table one, but like you've pointed out, we need some other studies to really decide which patients are going to be the ones to respond to um, heparin kind of in a stable way versus not. Uh, but I, I like, you know, the suggestion at the end to say, well, what about the use of things that we know are more stable, um, like low molecular weight heparin? Uh, so can you comment a little bit on like why we don't use low molecular heparin already or what, what would need to happen? Yeah, I think at our center, at least we're using it more and more. Uh, I find it pretty rare nowadays that we're using unfractionated heparin, but it's not the same at all centers, um, certainly. Uh, and speaking with colleagues uh, who work at other academic institutions in uh, Canada, uh, unfractionated heparin is still the standard in uh, lots of places. Uh, but in general, low molecular weight heparin, um, you know, I think part of the reason people are afraid of using it is uh, just because of unfamiliarity. So um, it's, there, 
I think we talked about this earlier today, that people trained with unfractionated heparin and they're used to that and they're just not familiar with low molecular weight heparin. Um, it's uh, also one other factor is that it's... Um, there's not there aren't too many studies on, specifically on low molecular weight heparin in uh, hyperacute stroke patients. So there's data uh, um, uh, there are data from patients in other settings certainly, um, and there's a lot uh, more uh, research when you look into uh, venous thromboembolism research and other um, indications for low molecular weight heparin. But specifically for stroke patients, uh, we're we're lacking that, and we don't have. Uh, many trials specifically comparing low molecular weight heparin to unfractionated heparin. There are some trials specifically, of course, looking for uh, venous sinus thrombosis. Uh, but in some of these other indications, for example, the patients uh, in that first category that we talked about uh, with intraluminal thrombus, uh, free-floating thrombus or partial non-occlusive thrombus, we don't have large randomized controlled trials comparing low molecular weight heparin with unfractionated heparin in these settings. And I think part of that it, it causes people anxiety and clinicians are more afraid to use it. And people are anxious about the fact that it has a quick onset and you're basically effective much more quickly, even though that is kind of the goal of the, the anticoagulation, but I think it causes people to pause when they don't think they can turn it off immediately uh, or potentially reverse it like you can with unfractionated heparin. Although I'll argue I, I've never actually seen protamine used for unfractionated heparin in a stroke setting uh, because of a, hem you know, a hemorrhage or something like that. I've never, I don't know if, um, Human, if you can comment on that, but I've never actually seen it in that setting. Yeah, we thought the same. Tess and I thought, you know, uh, protamine sounds like a good idea. Uh, in some ways, you know, the setting where I've seen it really do wonders is patients who are post-cardiac surgery. And those patients, they're getting massive amounts of heparin to go on pump. They're getting unfractionated heparin. They're also coming out of the operating room, usually receiving uh, some blood products back to themselves through something called cell saver. So they're getting blood back, which is heparinized. And so, you know, in those cases, when they come out oozing and are bleeding, you really want to use, we, you know, we use protamine to, to help provide some hemostasis. But Otherwise, like in a stroke setting, you know, I think protobine provides like a false sense of security or a false sense of rescue because it's like, when was the last time you pulled out protamine and saved someone's life? Um, and it's kind of like bicarb, like it, it works, it might work, but you don't really know. And the situation is usually more dire. And so that was one of the things. Now, I do want to say if the patient is, for example, a large sinus thrombosis with massive infarction and ICP and about to go to the operating room or about to go to the operating room in the next four hours, I think in those patients, we would be scared and the surgeons would not want to give low molecular. So there are cases where it's fine to use, you know, unfractionated heparin, but by and large, you know, protamine is not what's going to save the patient's life. And what you really want is to avoid super therapeutic spikes or prolonged periods when the patient has nothing on board. And I think that's where really we should talk about table two, where, you know, we show in our work that the first, so in our, at our center, the APTT is between, you know, essentially 70 and 99 is what's considered therapeutic, 70 and 90, 90.9, excuse me. And um, on our paper, we had our colleagues, as Tess mentioned, uh, from thromboembolism, uh, hematology, respirology. And look at these numbers. Like for, this, for the first time that in our, like on our patients that the APTT goes over 70, 
35% of the time that occurred between 12 and 24 hours. So that means from the time it was started, it took about 12 hours to actually provide some blanket of protection for that patient. Yeah, it's almost counterintuitive because if people, as Tess mentioned, really want heparin in the hyperacute setting because it works right away, but are afraid to, you know, by 24 hours, you're out of the hyperacute treatment. You're rescanning the patient, looking at the state, and then making decisions about how to treat the ischemic event already. Um, so it's it's quite funny to me that 35% of patients are, are sitting at that. And that makes me really concerned about, as you're saying, like, where is the coverage when, you know, the risk of stroke, recurrent stroke from whatever ideology is the highest at that time? Yeah. And also we, we thought about steady states and we, you know, we talked to people and we try to figure out what's the reasonable thing. And so in fact, has went back and forth. In fact, had like analyzed the data both ways, more than I think three consecutive APTTs that were therapeutic versus two. So we settled on at least two consecutive APTT measurements. And when you look at that, time to steady state, 66% never reached steady state. And it's like it's like mind-blowing that, you know, so you, so you get this theoretical benefit of safety for stopping it if someone really ble bleeds out or... You know, as I said, if they need to go to an operation or something, fine. But this theoretical benefit of reversal, meanwhile, you're either not treating the patient or having some super therapeutic. Tess, you're going to have some wonderful comments about this, including the super therapeutic angle. Yeah, the super therapeutic angle is interesting. We had, uh, obviously, we worry about sub-therapeutic, but we did have um, quite a um, significant percentage of people who spent a lot of time over 90.9 um, on the APTT range. So uh, looking at that table, um, there in terms of the median, so 25% uh, of, of the time spent in the APTT range, that was super therapeutic. So 25%. So that's a lot. And essentially, we found, um, even though we had not many adverse events, uh, there were, we only had three patients with major bleeds. The there was an association in terms of um, the percent time spent in super super therapeutic range for those patients. Um, so I think it w this would be shown even more if we had a higher uh, number of patients in the study. Uh, but it just uh, gives us a clue that super therapeutic levels are also, of course, can be harmful. Um, and that's another kind of downfall of unfractionated heparin. Yeah, that was a cool analysis you did where you looked at the percentage of time. So I think you looked at the amount of time they were on the infusion, and then you, look, you looked at the percentage of time that they were either sub-therapeutic, in-therapeutic, or super-therapeutic. And you can see that the numbers as far as patients, 25% of the patients had uh, a percentage of time over the super-therapeutic range, and a very like essentially a quarter of the same patients were in the therapeutic range. And a vast majority actually never like never spent their time in a therapeutic range when they were on the infusion. And I think, yeah, Tess, like the, the reviewers kind of kept asking about the time sampling too. You were kind of we had to kind of address that, which was interesting. Yeah. So, and these were good good questions because um, many of reviewers wondered, you know, do we um, in terms of the blood blood sampling, are we introducing bias? Because if was blood sampling performed at similar time intervals for all included patients, um, and uh, it of course was not uh, in real life. Some patients, depending on the nomogram, have blood samples taken more often uh, than others who are 
more stable in terms of their APTT. Um, but in order to avoid uh, bias from that, um, we looked at, uh, actually used an interesting technique called the modified Rosendahl method, um, which uh, factors in the exact amount of time that has elapsed since the patient's previous APTT measurement. And so it uh, basically calculates exactly uh, how much time they're, they're spending at each APTT level, and it reduces the skew that would otherwise occur in patients who have had kind of several consecutive out-of-range APTT values within a short time period. Um, so we're not just looking at um, the number of blood draws they had, but over what uh, what time. And, uh, you know, the downfall of this, of course, is that we had to assume PTT remained steady between sampling intervals. So from time A to time B, uh, we had to assume that it was stable. And that's just because in real life, you can't measure APTT continuously. So of course, that's kind of the, a limitation uh, just because it's a real world study. Uh, but using this method, it kind of helps mitigate the bias a little bit that would otherwise be introduced uh, by having blood sampling performed at the different time intervals. And this is how they do a lot of uh, studies with INR and um, warfarin patients as well. So that's kind of where we got that idea from. That sounds like a really cool method. Theoretically speaking, can you like compare these therapeutic times to how an equivalent patient might be, how therapeutic a equivalent patient on low molecular weight heparin would be? You know, clinically, we don't monitor uh, low molecular weight heparin because we know it's very stable compound. We know that uh, it's reliable. Uh, you know, we check the platelet count from time to time for uh, potential complications like HIT. But generally speaking, we don't, we don't do these things. So just wondering comparatively how they look. Yeah, I mean, at, uh, low molecular weight heparin, and it just it has a more predictable dose response relationship and so we don't usually monitor it and it's kind of weight based of course and then you can factor in some adjustments depending on their their renal function and uh, and of course actually that's another situation in some cases unfractionated heparin might be better if someone um, has really uh, poor renal function but in any case it, we don't really um routinely uh, monitor how patients, uh, how therapeutic patients are on low molecular weight heparin just because of that more predictable dose response um, relationship. So uh, I don't know if you have anything else to add to that, um, Human. No, I think that's, that's excellent. That's totally complete. Um, there definitely are times you want to use it. I think maybe we can um, sort of end off on kind of what we end up doing pragmatically now these days. Uh, kind of based on what we want to do, like what we want to achieve, which is a gradual, uh, reliable quality of anticoagulation for someone with acute, uh, essentially neurovascular brain injury. So uh, maybe Tess, you can kind of talk about kind of what's your pragmatic approach to someone who comes in with each of these types of uh, indications and you know when you'd go full tilt on the low molecular and when you wouldn't and things like that. Yeah. So, and I learned a lot of uh, what I do now. I, I learned a lot of it from kind of your, your approach and all our discussions that we've had on this topic. And um, so overall uh, my approach and a lot of other uh, colleagues at our center, uh, we really just don't use unfractioned heparin except those rare circumstances that, that we uh, talked about. And if a patient needs acute anticoagulation, um, then we, um, for any of these indications, um, so uh, depending on the exact setting, uh, we will use low molecular weight heparin and the dose will kind of be chosen depending on 
our perceived um, risk for that individual patient for um, hemorrhage. So if someone has a very large infarct and has a need for anticoagulation, for example, they have a thrombus sitting in their heart and we need to anticoagulate them, they're high risk, but they have a decent sized stroke. We don't necessarily start a full dose low molecular weight heparin um, for that patient. We don't start you know, one milligram per kilogram BID for that patient right away, but can start a little bit lower, for example, a, a two-thirds of the dose or depending on the size of the stroke, sometimes even lower, and continue that for 24, 48 hours, repeat a brain scan and uh, up titrate accordingly based on um, that. And of course, if there is any complication, hemorrhagic transformation uh, or other complications, then you might have to scale back. Uh, And overall, that's kind of the approach that we've been using um, at our center and has seemed to work out uh, I think better than the unfractionated heparin, and we're all now much more comfortable over time with the low molecular. And now I actually would hate to use unfractionated heparin because I'm just not used to it, and I'm used to using the low molecular weight, and I trust it more, uh, just because of um, as we talked about that it's more predictable. It's got a longer plasma half life, better bioavailability, and we know that as you know, pretty much soon after you started, the patient will actually be properly anticoagulated, and you're, they're not sub-therapeutic uh, as they would be for unfractionated heparin for many hours. So that's kind of the approach we've been taking and, and um, extrapolating from many studies on, on CVST. And there are some um, uh, uh, Cochrane meta-analyses, and meta-analyses comparing low molecular weight heparin and unfractionated heparin for venous thromboembolism that have shown that the superiority of low molecular weight heparin in terms of efficacy and the fact that it's safer, even fewer hemorrhagic complications. So extrapolating from that, I think um, overall, it, it seems that it's at least as safe and effective as unfractionated heparin and uh, for kind of... Uh, likely also for stroke indications and venous thromboembolism, but also cerebral venous thromboembolism and in non-cerebral venous thromboembolism and in other indications for stroke. Uh, So that's been um, our approach at our center. I think for the skeptics out there, they're still wondering about hemorrhagic transformation. Maybe the two of you guys can comment on the pathophysiology of the bleed. My understanding is that when a patient bleeds, you know, it's that first moment that the bleeding happens, that really the injury happens and the, the effects of the bleeding, uh, the direct effects of the bleeding are occurring. Everything else is secondary uh, because I, echoing back to what Tess said much earlier, I've never seen a situation where someone was already on one agent with a hemorrhage and that we brought out protamine or if they were on dabigatran, brought that out. It just, it just doesn't seem to be... Um, there isn't much rationale for reversing either. I know we give vitamin K for uh, people who are on warfarin and sometimes we give PCC complex when hematology com- uh, comments. But even then, I-, I don't know how much of that is just for our own reassurance or how much of how much evidence is actually behind that. Uh, so maybe you can comment on if there is even evidence to reverse after someone has a bleed. Because I do think part of it is our conscious, you know, we'd rather do nothing than give something and have a complication. But when you really think about it, doing nothing is uh, not giving a person the good anticoagulation they need is problematic too. I think it depends on the indication, right? So like if we're like, I think the key thing is that our discussion here is limited to these 
indications of heparin use and, and the potential hemorrhagic transformation, such as, you know, when there's an intramural thrombus with already an existing stroke or maybe no stroke yet, and we're anticoagulating, sinus thrombosis, you know, venous infarct, essentially congestion causing a venous infarct, and then the cardioembolism or cardiogenic causes. But when it comes to ICH, I think you'd be kind of beyond the scope of what we can talk about here because like those trials are going to continue to occur with faster enrollment and faster intervention. So I think when it's primary ICH or an anticoagulation-related hemorrhage, that's kind of a different beast than what we're talking about here. But those are, those are still good thoughts. I mean, generally, uh, hemorrhage occurs due to blood-brain barrier breakdown, and then there's even secondary injury from, as you said, like for what happens to those neurons and glia and all that stuff. But in the context of what we're talking about, I think it's important to, um, to say that it's in the context of these kind of ischemic type of lesions. Uh, and there's two things I wanted to say. One is, obviously, all the discussion here needs to occur, you know, with expert management. And it's never going to be like this podcast can never be like a, you know, a, a way for you to then kind of kind of tailor your management. You have to gain local expertise. Uh, but I do want to say two other cool things that uh, Tess and I experienced. One was, uh, you know, we published it in a journal that is for thrombosis and thrombosis research. And we did have uh, reviewers both in this journal and in a previous journal say, well, of course, low molecular. So it's like when you go to the thrombosis specialist, they really thought low molecular is the way. Um, and But the other thing is that if you look at bridging therapy, so meaning, for example, a patient with atrial fibrillation who then you want to bridge, who's had a stroke, who you want to bridge because of a high, let's say, CHAD score with heparin, it's important to note that there are actually studies that show those patients bleed and that bridging therapy is not advised. But it's very important to point out that what we're talking about, which is not part of the study, but what we do pragmatically is we don't go to full dose. We, we go lower doses and we slowly creep up, thereby mimicking what we want loma, uh, excuse me, unfractionated to do. So the whole concept of unfractionated is you want to go low without a bolus, nicely up titrate slowly, you know, don't cause any ruffles. And if there's a bleed, stop it. But in, pragma in practicality, what we're showing is that, you know what, this agent with nomograms and blood draws is just not possible to do that. So what we do is we pragmatically use low molecular at titrated doses uh, we don't go immediately full dose, and then we go from there. Now, in sinus thrombosis, we might go full dose right away, especially if there's no already established uh, bleed or something like that. And and that literature is also evolving with use of thrombectomy and things like that. But these are some important caveats of this work. It is retrospective. It is it is looking at the quality of anticoagulation for unfractionated, and then we're giving you some insight about kind of what we do pragmatically by using low molecular with a titrated dose in most of those indications of intraluminal thrombus with existing stroke uh, or cardio cardioembolism with inter intra intracardiac thrombus or a valve that has thrombus on it or something like that. So hopefully that kind of ties it in nicely about kind of the, the ways we do use it. So I guess, uh, are there any parting thoughts? Any uh, sort of final comments? Just thank you so much for reintroducing this topic to the stroke world. And I, I hope that more of these conversations are had. And I think as a learner, I'm going to start questioning this more, uh, but really leaning on the point that you said that you really have to use local expertise uh, to support you in these decisions. And I'll just add, I think that this just highlights how much or how desperately we need an actual trial in uh, the stroke world that compares low molecular weight heparin with unfractionated heparin uh, so that we can 
actually prove, you know, that all of these the approaches that we take and um, all of the things that we just talked about, that there's actually a, a benefit when you look at a randomized controlled trial and prospectively look at uh, patients treated with either agent. So that's in desperate need. <laughs> to that end, I think you could start that with an environmental scan because really, you know, the stroke world is very much about best practices. And in Canada, you know, we really, really lead on those. There's a lot of people delivering stroke care uh, in community and peripheral hospitals that don't necessarily have the subspecialty training to do uh, expert advice. Uh, fortunately, in Ontario, we have great access to to telehealth support. Uh, but I think I think if someone was keen and really wanted to move this forward an environmental scan to see what people are actually doing might be really helpful so just a thought that's great we could add some contacts in the show notes and if you're interested in doing that and or helping us do that that's, that's really appreciated that's great so thank you so much for joining me and thank you so much for your expert comments and uh, again thank you so much Tess for getting this project to the finish line and putting it all together and we're, we're, we were thanks for Kat's comments that we managed to package it in a small article a short article so if you do get a chance to read it, it's only about uh, two pages and a bit. So so that's there you have it. So thank you so much. Thank you. Take care and congrats on the article. Thank you. Take care. See you on the next episode of Stroke FM. Mm-hmm.